the past two weeks' events in Afghanistan have cast a shadow on all our lives. In this episode, we bring back Tamina, a brand that helps transform lives in conflict zones through economic development and opportunities. We had initially released this episode in February 2020, a time much different than now, a time full of hope and optimism. Tamina was founded by a U.S.-born, fresh college graduate to help bring high-quality Afghan saffron and saffron tea to the international markets. Mindful Businesses is bringing this episode back to you so you may be able to visualize the rich culture, heritage, and beauty of Afghanistan and its people. We are partnering with Education Foundation for Afghanistan to raise funds to help protect and educate women. 100% of your donation will go to these causes. When a girl is educated, she uplifts the next generation. Please don't look away. Donate by clicking on the link in the episode notes. People see Afghan saffron, they're able to think here is a very high quality luxury product that is not just coming out of this nation, but is really helping to rewrite and to write a new story for this nation. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Iyer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Sarah Jackson, founder and CEO of Tamina, to be brave. We do not use Sarah's real name due to security reasons. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Vidya, for having me. Most Americans associate Afghanistan with war, bombings, ISIS, a lack of women's rights. But in fact, Afghanistan has been an important country in the ancient Silk Route, connecting China to the Mediterranean countries. This strategic position and its proximity to Russia has shaped Afghanistan's history. Give us a short history lesson about its rich heritage. Yeah, I think it's interesting for a lot of Americans because Afghanistan really only enters our kind of mental scape and mental history starting with 9-11. And obviously, before then, there has been a very, very long history. And so Afghanistan, as you shared, used to be a very key area on the Silk Road. And because of its strategic location, it attracted a lot of empires. And it's very interesting about Afghanistan. There's a quote about the country where people say that it is easy to invade, but difficult to conquer. And so you have everybody from Alexander the Great to Genghis Khan to just about every great empire who has come through Afghanistan, uh, tried to conquer the nation but were unable to do so. And so that really speaks to the strength and the resilience of the Afghan people. And when we enter slightly more modern history of the 1900s, up to the time that Afghanistan entered war, which was uh, before the 1970s, it was actually called the Paris of Central Asia. And so if you look at pictures from Afghanistan in the 1950s and the 1960s, it will just be very fascinating to what we have as Westerners in our mind of what Afghanistan is. There were women going to school and they were wearing miniskirts. There was this rich culture and rich history that was in the Afghan people. I even remember actually seeing this uh, 
there was an article in Vogue in the 1950s, and it was highlighting a fashion designer who came from Afghanistan. And so it's interesting because there's so much more than meets the eye for this nation. There's such a heritage of so much beauty and so much culture. And it is sad that people don't know that. But I think um, the more that we're willing to look, the deeper that we're willing to investigate and research, it's very easily found. Talk about how the British and the Russians, their interference changed what we know, what the present situation in Afghanistan is right now. Yeah. So if you look at the past 100 years of the history of Afghanistan, there essentially were kind of three periods of conflict with Western nations. And so the first one started with the British in the early 1900s, and there were a series of Anglo-Afghan wars. Which I must say that the British did not win. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. They, they did not win. They were kind of chased out through the series of the wars. And um, 1919 is Afghan independence. And that is actually when they kind of gained independence from the from the British. And so they were not victorious. Mm-hmm. So when British ruled India, they did not rule Afghanistan? No, they did not. Interesting. And it's interesting because there is uh, slightly this pattern of really big Western powers who were able to conquer the neighboring nations. But once they tried to get into Afghanistan, they failed. And so Britain was a great example of that, the early 1900s. Very similar thing happened with the USSR and the Soviet Union in the 1970s, where they had conquered most of the other Central Asian nations. And Afghanistan was the last place that they tried to go into. And it's really fascinating what happened with the Soviet Union in the 1970s and 1980s, because Afghanistan ultimately became their equivalent of the Vietnam War. They tried to go in, they tried to conquer, they were unable to do so, but it was actually the kind of sucking out of resources and all of that eventually contributed to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so just a really fascinating place in terms of how resistant the people have been to outside invaders and outside empires. And then as we have seen more recently, the U.S. has come into Afghanistan starting in 2001. There was monarchy in Afghanistan prior to 1919? Uh, Yeah, actually up to the period of the USSR, there were kings in Afghanistan. And so the last king, I I don't know the exact year, but he was ruling all the way up till um, it became the Democratic Republic and became like a communist government. And so now the situation in Afghanistan is they have a democratically elected president, Ashraf Ghani. How is everyday life in Afghanistan now? Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, some people, they imagine that I'm I'm living out in an active battlefield, like in the trenches, which, you know, obviously is not true. Um, So how often do you have to go back there? I live there. I live there full time. Okay. Yeah, so I'm based out in Afghanistan. And so it's interesting because on one hand, you have very normal life. You have kids who are going to school, adults who are going to work and to their jobs every day, and people just trying to have a normal semblance of life in the midst of war. However, depending on where you are, you might also have bombs uh, every week in your city, or you might have high rates of crime, or you might have your village that is, you know, oppressed by insurgent groups. And it's in one sense, you do have normal life, yet in another sense, it's very much 
a place of war. And as I shared with the history, Afghanistan has actually been in war nonstop for more than 40 years. And so it's really fascinating just interacting with the people of Afghanistan because you have entire generations of people who have never seen peace in their life. And they don't know what it's like to live uh, in a nation of peace. They don't know what it's like to live a life of peace. When I think about Afghanistan, I'm thinking about Kite Runner, mm-hmm. you know, Swallows of Kabul, and those sort of books and some other movies that I've seen and in just women in hijabs mm-hmm. skirting away in the dark. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's not the case all over Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not the case all over. And I think what has been encouraging for me personally has been seeing how culture has been shifting among the young people. And so with the younger generation, it's really fascinating. I think this last statistic that I heard is that over 70% of the Afghan population is under the age of 30. Wow. Yeah. And so like to give you kind of a frame of reference, I think the average in the US is about 30% of the population is under the age of 30 in the US. And so you have a massively young population. And you have this massively young population, which is which has never seen peace. They have never seen peace. But I think one thing that is really encouraging about this young generation is that compared to their parents, they have at least seen a little bit more stability in their life. It's like they might have really young memories of the Taliban regime, but they might not have been alive during the civil war. I've heard horrible, horrible stories of that civil war. Um, and so there, you have a generation where they're young and they have hope in their life. And what's been really fascinating to observe is that these young people now have access to Facebook. A lot of them are on Instagram. And so in a way that a lot of their parents were unable to see, they're seeing what's happening around the world. And they're seeing what does a coffee shop look like outside? You know, like what is dating like for people in Western nations? They're, they're seeing a lot of things that were previously unavailable to people in Afghanistan because it was so closed off for a variety of reasons, lack of technology, lack of education. And so because of that, I feel like when I see young people in Afghanistan, I it's like I'm seeing a generation where they're almost stuck between the past and the future. You know, it's unique because more than anybody before them, they've been able to see so much of both and how they're going to lead the future and how they're going to lead the nation. I have a lot of hope for it and I'm very curious to see what will happen. Um, now, Vidya, I, I would understand that you're from India, is that correct? Yes. And so, so what is your view of Afghanistan? I think... I grew up in the South, so we have a completely different Indian experience Mm-hmm. than the people who grew up in the north. I always had a warm feeling towards Afghanistan. I'm not sure why. Mm-hmm. There's a movie called Kabuliwala. Okay. <laughs> and I saw there was this fruit vendor who came from Kabul who and who was very warm and kind to a child. So I think I have that memory mm-hmm. of Afghanistan. And But of course, I do remember the time when the Indian plane going to Kathmandu was taken hostage Mm -hmm. for the release of some extremists which were held in Indian prisons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do remember that that was probably 98 or so, 98, 99, Mm -hmm. I remember. Yeah. So that that was a very, very difficult time for India. And I was in India at that time. And I think it was a difficult time in terms of India Mm -hmm. and Afghanistan's relationship. But I do think a lot of Indian businesses are there in Afghanistan. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And they are doing a lot of the rebuilding 
um, the civil engineering the, in uh, Afghanistan. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. The relationship between Afghanistan and India more recently has been very positive and very close. So you said education has made a difference. It's, what is the literacy rate right now amongst the population under 30 and specifically the women? I don't know those numbers specifically by demographic, but what I can tell you is that the illiteracy rate in Afghanistan so the rate of people who cannot read or write their own name is 69%. Even right now? Right now. Which is like, I think as Americans, it's almost like unfathomable that you have almost 70% of your country, they cannot read or write their own name. Right, right. And, um, you know, obviously it depends on what city are you in, what province are you in, what part of the country are you in, how are you in an urban area or a rural area in terms of the education levels. But I would say that just what I've observed um, and I'm sure that there would be statistics that would kind of correlate with what I'm saying is that among the young people, that education level is going to be higher. So, Sarah, tell me how you started this project. And I want to call it a project because this is not an easy business. It's not like you go to a European country uh, or even Africa, for that matter, yeah. and try to import tea from there. You have to start everything right from the beginning, the logistics, the supply chain, the packaging, so many in, in different steps, gathering it and bringing it to the Western world. How did you start this project? Are your roots in Afghanistan? My roots are actually not in Afghanistan. And uh, I didn't really have any previous connection to the country until I started Tamina. And so well, let me share that story with you. When I was in college, I can't even remember the day or time that it was. But all I remember is I was reading my daily news. And I read this article about Afghanistan. In the article, it said that more than 90% of the world's heroin comes out of Afghanistan. And I don't know why, but I was just really gripped by the injustice of this war-torn, impoverished nation now supplying a global drug crisis. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, man, like this is so not right and something has to be done about this. And at the time, it was just something interesting happened in that I was actually attending an Ivy League university. And so my friends, they're dreaming about becoming presidents and bankers and neurosurgeons. And I literally started sitting there and I was like, how can I go to Afghanistan and see if I can make a difference with this issue? And so what happened was a few years later, I was uh, sitting in on this social enterprise incubator. I started researching what was being done about the issue since I had heard about it a few years past. And I went on the internet, was doing uh, some research, and I found out that the government was starting to invest in saffron. And so I'm sure, Vidya, for you, you you're very familiar with saffron, correct? Yes. yes. Yeah. So you've, I'm sure you've had it in food. You know, you've used it a lot in India. As we speak, I can smell it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's so funny because with whenever I meet Indians and Persians, I'm just like, you literally breathe in saffron every day. So. And so for a lot of people among our Western audiences who are unfamiliar with saffron, it's the world's most expensive spice. It's more expensive than gold by weight. And at the time, I was reading that an Afghan farmer could actually earn six times more income growing saffron than growing poppy. And uh, the government was investing in saffron. A lot of people were uh, having a lot of hope around saffron, but there were still a couple barriers to the industry. So for example, the farmers were you know, growing the crop, but because of lack of infrastructure and lack of access to international markets, they were unable to really export it at a high volume. And so there were barriers to the industry, this new industry growing. 
And I know it sounds so crazy, but in that moment, I just came to the most logical conclusion that every normal human being would. And I thought I should move to Afghanistan and start. Of course. <laughs> oh my God. And crazy enough, I did. Um, I moved to Afghanistan in 2015. And where the story gets even more unbelievable, I would say, is that when I moved to Afghanistan in 2015, there were actually three people who joined me. So my two parents and my best friend from college. Um, we all came with this vision of starting Tamina, so we're a family business. Uh, my parents and I, we've been there since 2015. So I've been in Afghanistan for four and a half years now, just working on Tamina and working on this project. So what does Tamina do? What do you sell? We are obviously exporting saffron. And when we did our initial market research, um, as you shared, you know, business is very risky. Even if you're starting it in a first world nation, let alone to do that in a conflict zone, it's very, very risky. And so the initial stage, we did a lot of market research of, is this a viable business idea? And when we were researching for the U.S. market, people like you who have some level of a background that has familiarity with saffron in your heritage or in your natural cuisine, you know what saffron is. Mm -hmm. But what we found was that there were a lot of Americans who just didn't know what saffron was, let alone how to use it. And so we do have saffron as a spice, but what we kind of pivoted to in terms of our main product line was actually to start blending saffron into different teas. There's a couple of reasons for that. Like I shared, this was just a more accessible product for people to be able to engage and interact with Saffron. And then the other uh, really cool thing that we found as we were doing the market research was we discovered that Saffron has so many health benefits. Mm -hmm. Have you used Saffron before for kind of like natural health or Ayurvedic uses? No, and actually I just wrote down uh, in my notes to the next question I wanted to ask you is what are the medicinal properties of Saffron? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so we found out that Saffron has a lot of different health benefits. How like nerdy do you want me to get about this? these medicinal properties? Go for it. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> saffron, a lot of people are also like, you know, what is it? And so if you imagine there's a crocus and there's a purple flower, there's three red stigmas that come out of that flower. And that's actually why saffron is so expensive is that's all that there is to make that spice. So for example, if you want to make one gram of saffron, mm -hmm. you need 150 flour. So it's a very precious spice full of value and just the way that it's created in the process, it's all done by hand. And within these three stigmas, saffron is known for cooking. But if you've noticed um, when you had rice and it turns things yellow, it's used as a dye for textiles. Mm -hmm. And the, the chemical that makes the color, the red color in the saffron and turns things that golden yellow color it's called crocin. Crocin is a carotenoid. And so if that's going to sound familiar, if you're thinking about carotene in carrots and pumpkin and apricots and, you know, these things that have that red, orange, yellow color. The crocin content in saffron is what is responsible for a lot of the health benefits. It's really rich in antioxidants. Uh, it's really rich in what we call free radical scavengers, uh, which medical people or nutrition people will know what that is. And it's just so fascinating because there are so many different ailments that saffron can help in. So some of those are um, depression and anxiety. There are actually clinical studies of some people using saffron in place of uh, antidepressants and it having very similar efficacy. So it's just so fascinating. Really great for insomnia and high blood pressure. Really great for eye health. Mm -hmm. um, really great for PMS and sexual dysfunction. It's very, really good for your skin in terms of the antioxidants and, and the anti-aging properties. And so just has numerous, numerous 
health benefit. I remember drinking warm milk with saffron and pistachio and cardamom ground just before bedtime. Mm-hmm. I guess that's how we were able to get a peaceful sleep at night. Yeah. And, you know, there's even some people when um, they're drinking our tea and they feel like the effects of saffron where they might have previously been stressed or very anxious. But by drinking our tea, they feel calmer and they feel like their nerves have been soothed. Saffron in tea is your innovation. It's not traditional Afghan. Well, it is actually, I wouldn't call it my innovation. Um, It definitely is in the kind of Persian and the wider Central Asian tradition. And so in Afghanistan, if you walk into a home and Uh, For example, they might be very wealthy and it's even like an expression of status or uh, it might be a very special holiday or they might consider that you are a very prized guest. Mm -hmm. Many times in that home, they will actually serve you saffron tea. And so even there, it's just um, an amazing expression of hospitality. Mm -hmm. I feel like even like what we were speaking about the history of like the royalty and the rich culture, there's a gesture to that as well. And so there's so much like special meaning I feel behind this saffron tea. That's fascinating to learn because I know the use of saffron in, of course, the milk, the desserts, and the pilav and some mm-hmm. vegetable dishes. So where else is saffron grown? I know it's a mancha saffron in mm-hmm. Spain. And what kind of conditions are conducive for the growth of saffron? Saffron is kind of naturally grown in the Mediterranean belt. So if you can imagine as far as kind of like Kashmir and northern India, and then you move westward over to Spain. And so within, you know, in the middle of that, there's Afghanistan, there's Iran, you have Turkey, Morocco, and Greece who also grow saffron. There are other parts of the world that actually grow saffron. So saffron has been grown in the United States. Very interesting fact is that one of the kind of last major communities to grow saffron in a significant quantity was actually the Amish community in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. If you go to Lancaster, you actually have like Amish and Mennonite people who have egg noodle recipes and chicken recipes that use saffron. I've seen people in the U.S. who also do grow it just uh, not commercially, but just for personal use. So you can actually grow it in your backyard. You can grow it in your home. And the other thing that's just so fascinating about saffron, that I do feel like it makes it so meaningful to Afghanistan, is that the harsher the environment, the better saffron grows. It actually thrives in very dry climate. It's interesting because we, uh, you know, visit the harvest and that usually happens in October, November in Afghanistan. And uh, what the farmers told me is that you actually need the climate to be a little bit cold in the fall. And once that temperature drops, the flower starts to bloom. And so it's it's fascinating because I think, you know, when we think about Afghanistan, war-torn nation, um, so much has just happened to the land and, and the atmosphere. Yet in the midst of that, this beautiful and precious flower has been able to thrive. And I do really feel like it's it's almost like a symbol to me of of what this can mean for the nation, um, not just agriculturally and, you know, not just in terms of the soil and the cultivation, but really in terms of how this nation is going to move forward. So are the fields sustainable? Do they use traditional methods? Do they use chemical fertilizers, pesticides? Are they organically grown or is that a completely different segment of saffron? Yeah, I um, I remember I was speaking to another foreigner who had come and he had some experience in agriculture and he You know, it it wasn't like a literal statement, but it was just an expression. But he was like, Afghanistan has the last natural lands on this earth. And so uh, he actually came from China where um, he was telling me that, you know, all kinds of chemical fertilizer to use, 
all kinds of unnatural uh, farming methods. And um, with Afghanistan, you might be able to find some fertilizers here and there, but you actually still have the vast majority of farmers who are using very, very traditional, like thousands year old farming methods. And all of those methods are organic. And so, you know, obviously I've seen the saffron fields, I've seen the flowers, they're, they're all organic. So we able to convince the farmers to switch from growing poppy to saffron or were they already farmers who were growing saffron and you gave them access to international markets? We are not right now in the business of trying to go out and convince poppy farmers to switch to saffron. There are a number of reasons for that. and Just one, maybe just the danger of having to go into those areas. Exactly. So that's the biggest factor is you have a lot of these places where it might be Taliban territory or you know it might be ICE, under ISIS control. And so as a business, it's just not the most sustainable model at this point to be like going into those areas and asking these farmers to switch. However, one very fascinating case study is the province of Herat, which is where more than 90% of Afghanistan's saffron is grown. Several years ago, they actually used to be a major poppy producing province. And after the introduction of saffron, it is almost impossible to find poppy grown in that province anymore. We source our saffron from there. And so there are definitely farmers who have previously switched from poppy. But what we're trying to focus on is there are farmers who are growing the saffron. They're growing a very high quality product. They don't have the access to the markets. And so how can we be that bridge? And so that's kind of more of our value proposition right now as a business versus, you know, a little bit of the riskier and kind of more dangerous model of going to the poppy farmers. Is there a difference in the saffron grown in Afghanistan and Kashmir and Spain? Is there a difference in the flavor it offers? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously, depending on where it comes from, there's going to be a slight variation. What is really cool about Afghan saffron is that it has actually been rated the world's best saffron for the past eight consecutive years. And so I think a lot of people, you know, they might think of, you know, a social enterprise in Afghanistan that it's like kind of like a charity project. But we actually have this very high quality luxury product. I just so, you know, believe kind of in the story of Afghanistan and what it can offer to the world in terms of it's not just like, you know, this nonprofit or like charity project that we're doing. But it really is a very high quality product that has a lot to offer. I must confess, I've never had Afghan uh, saffron. I've only always purchased Spanish mancha saffron. I think even if it's like somebody's an amateur, just by looking at the color, you can definitely tell the quality difference. So the darker, richer color. Mm -hmm. The more dark and kind of red a saffron is, the better its quality. And like I shared before about the crocin and how that's responsible for the color, the more dark and red you see a saffron, then you you know that it has a higher crocin content. And so therefore, you're going to have higher health benefits, all those things involved with the crocin. Yeah, I've never seen Afghan saffron in India. That's kind of interesting that there is this treasure right next to India and was never exposed to it. Yeah, I mean, I think more recently, uh, India has been exporting more of Afghan saffron. Uh, Rather importing more of Afghan saffron. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's been coming in um, more recently. So from your description of Afghanistan, you've created this image which actually wants me to go visit these <laughs> fields of purple lavender crocuses. Mm-hmm. It had such a rich history. You know, talk about the, the Buddhism. What is important is to give people an option by opening the international markets for your farmers. Other farmers will very quickly learn from it and say, hey, I'm going to make more money this way and it's legal. 
with everybody who's involved in the Afghan saffron industry, we all want to be part of a national narrative to show people, look, here's another choice. And what I really foresee happening in the industry is that we would also help to really be building a national brand for Afghan saffron. Like you shared, you know, a lot of people, they might not necessarily know what is the difference between Indian or Spanish, or a lot of people have never even tried Afghan saffron because it's such a new industry. But we really hope that Every company who's involved, um, like not just Tamina, but everybody who's involved in this Afghan saffron industry, we would be able to contribute to the brand that when people see Afghan saffron, they're able to think here is a very high quality luxury product that is not just coming out of this nation, but is really helping to rewrite and to write a new story for this nation. So do you speak Farsi? I do. So you learned after you went there or you learned during your school and went back? When we first moved there, I did language school for six months full time. And so that's how I learned. So what does Tamina mean in Farsi? Yeah, so the name Tamina, it's a uh, Persian girl's name. And so you might have a friend who's named Tamina. It's a very common name. It's like the equivalent of Jessica or, you know, just any other girl's name. And it's, it's really fascinating because uh, the name itself means brave. There's a little story behind this name is that when we first chose Tamina, um, I didn't know that it mean brave. I thought it meant something else because I think I was looking at this like American baby dictionary or something. And uh, after I learned to read and write Persian, I actually hopped on the internet and I, I decided I would do kind of one more deeper dive into this name. And then I found out that the, the root of Tamina, which is Tahum, um, T-A-H-M, it actually means strong or brave. And when I found that out, I just thought, wow, like this is such a meaningful name for us to have. And, um, you know, our motto is to be brave. And so our our hope is that we would not only help the farmers and women of Afghanistan have courage in their own lives, but that through the story that we're sharing, we would also be able to help inspire courage in our consumers who are drinking our tea. Thank you, Sarah, for coming on Mindful Businesses. And thank you for all the work that you do in Afghanistan. Yeah, it was such a pleasure. And, you know, I have to say, I really appreciate your questions. I feel like not many people are asking about the history or, or these kinds of things. And so really great conversation to have with you. Thank you so much. Same here. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send us a message on our Facebook or Instagram page. We recorded this podcast at Q1067 in Lafayette, Indiana. Tatum Gale composed the music for this podcast. This is Vidya Ayer for Mindful Businesses.